Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by sommelier and corporate beverage director, Brandon Ford of the Hyde Park Restaurant Group. I first uh, got introduced to Brandon through really Taylor Wolf. Uh, Taylor Wolf was a previous guest on this podcast. He's the psalm and wine director over at the Refectory here in Columbus. And Brandon was very influential on Taylor's career. And once that episode aired, Brandon reached out and was like, hey, if you ever want to have a conversation, be more than happy to come on your podcast. And I'm always down to talk to anybody who's interested in listening to the podcast and wants to come on and share their story and how they got into their field and everything. It's a really interesting and cool conversation. I I know I think I kind of, that's probably a cliche at this point. I say that I probably about every episode, but it is. I didn't know anything about Brandon, you know, or his kind of career. He started out kind of in the Buffalo area and roundabout way, eventually wound up in Cleveland. And Cleveland's kind of one of these places where it's not known for its wine scene, but it's starting to slowly kind of get some eyes looking at it, you know, with stuff that he's doing. Uh, Flight up there um, is a wine bar that recently opened that looks super interesting and kind of stuff that they got going on and different collabs that they've done. I think they did one with Matt Spinner over at Baroni kind of one of their first ones they did like a a wine and probably japanese whiskey thing it's really interesting to just see these kind of midwest cities wine programs evolve you know cincinnati you have iris reed and a whole bunch of stuff there with uh different wine there's a handful of different wine shops too as well down there and then here in columbus you know you have greg stokes and accent you have a bunch of different independent wine shops commune has a natural wine program too so that's kind of unique that you can find and we've had a bunch of these people on so If you've been listening to the podcast, you're aware. You can follow Brandon on Instagram at 216psalm. He doesn't do too much on Instagram. Admittedly, I think he actually talks about it in this episode. He was off Instagram for a while and just recently got back on. So there's not a whole lot of activity, but um, he does throw a few stories up there every once in a while. You can also follow him at Hyde Park Prime Steakhouse. You can follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, but those platforms we use sparingly. It's mostly for podcast updates. Mainly it's Instagram, what we use. Uh, make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on every platform you can think of. New episodes come out on Thursdays, and then a week later they hit YouTube, if that's your preferred player. Sometimes we drop episodes randomly during the week with some updates from previous guests and everything that come back on. So those usually come out in the beginning of the week when we have them kind of randomly. So that's why you want to be subscribed to the podcast feed. So that way everything just downloads straight into your device and your player. So it's there as soon as you open it, as soon as it comes out. So feel free to write in any questions, comments, feedback through the website, spoonmob.com. We got a contact portal there, a bunch of different info on chefs and their contact info, different food photos and stuff too. Most of which we've posted to Instagram. You can sort by different guests that's been on the podcast, and then you can kind of see all the food photos related to if they were a chef or what have you. So, and any Instagram contact information or spelling the last names or anything like that, if you're trying to look somebody up. You could also email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com for anything. If there's any questions you ever thought of asking a sommelier or a chef or somebody in the restaurant industry, feel free to write those in. And then we kind of incorporate those into the one of the upcoming episodes, one that we think would fit best with whichever guest after we kind of do our initial round of research. So uh, without further delay, here is my conversation with sommelier and corporate beverage director Brandon Ford of the Hyde Park Restaurant Group in Cleveland, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast and taking some time out of one of your days off. 
learned about you through Taylor, who uh, did the podcast a little while back and his episode just came out and, and got connected and everything. And I was like talking to sommeliers and different people kind of working in the, the wine field and everything. So, you know, we'll get to kind of what you're doing now and future plans and everything kind of a little bit later, but take me back to the beginning of your career. You know, how did you first kind of get started in the hospitality industry in the world of wine? I've worked in hospitality since I was 16. You know, my first job was, I mean, I guess you consider Arby's hospitality. Um, my first job was at Arby's and then I just paid my way through college with it. I worked, you know, in undergrad and worked at um, Steak and Shake as a server there. That was my first serving job ever. Um, and then, you know, moved to casual and then from casual to like upscale casual dining. Um, and then by, by the time I was 21, 22, um, I learned pretty quickly that the the best way for me to, you know, make more money as a server was to know about the wine list, the wine program. And with that, um, you know, I I, had, I was fortunate enough to have a, um, a beverage manager at the restaurant I was working at that, you know, let me sit in on tastings and let me, you know, taste stuff, you know, and um, knowledge grew from there. And then even, you know, moved to Buffalo, New York. I'm from Indianapolis originally. So I did my undergrad at University at, at Indianapolis. Um, moved to Buffalo, New York for um, graduate school. Even at this point, you know, I'm learning about wine, but it, it's all money focused, money driven. I don't want to, I'm not one of those people that, you know, back when I was 22, I can't tell you that somebody opened up like a Petrus or something like that and served it to me. And I had an aha moment. I didn't. Um, my parents didn't drink wine. They didn't really drink, period. My dad would have like a Miller Lite every now and then. Um, so there was no um, background you know, of, of this at all. I remember I won like a serving contest and won my first bottle of wine at 21. I think it was like a, this Castle La Postel, um, like reserve Chardonnay, like a Chilean Chardonnay, probably 50 bucks, right? Retail. And the only thing I knew about wine at that time was that like, you were supposed to lay it down. You're supposed to lay it like horizontally. So I hid it in my closet, like wrapped it in sweaters and laid it down horizontally, like to bring out for a special occasion, because it was, uh, you know, a big deal. $15 for uh, a drink just seemed crazy at that point in time in my life. But so I moved to Buffalo, New York for graduate school. My, my ultimate goal was not to end up in hospitality, not to end up doing what I do now. Um, it was to become an English professor in literature. I have my master's degree in, in English Lit from um, SUNY Buffalo, um, University of Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. When I graduated with that master's degree, I was still, you know, I was still putting my way through working at restaurants, you know, paying for stuff that way. When I graduated with that master's degree, um, that was 2008, 2009. So at that point, I had to decide whether I was going to go into uh, my PhD program um, or do something else. And, you know, I, I sat down with my advisor um, great guy still at the University of um, at Buffalo, and I was like, you know, what should we do? He goes, you know, you, you can you can go for your PhD and you can spend five or seven more years getting that. Um, you know, that's fine. He goes, but one out of two people with their PhD will never become an English professor. So he's like, if that's your goal to become a professor in academia, you know, you have to really think whether you want that because there's a 50-50 shot that you won't end up doing that. And I was like, oh man, that's uh, that's crazy. So at that point, I decided I liked uh, wine just about as much. And then I was going to dive headfirst into that and dive into uh, hospitality. So that's when I made the move from serving to managing. I managed um, my first management job. What was it? It was the melting pot. 
where I managed, I was an assistant manager at the Melting Pot Slaying Fondue. I did that um, for a bit. Um, and then I, you know, managed, uh, got, got a beverage manager job at Hyde Park when they, uh, when they had one in Buffalo, New York, that's since closed. And then when that closed, that was an opportunity for me to, you know, branch out into locally owned places in Buffalo. So I worked for, I ultimately ended up at Oliver's Restaurant, which is a, uh, a AAA three diamond festival award-winning wine list that I took over and ran. You know, we had about a thousand SKUs, a thousand different bottles. Um, we we bought, we had a cellar where we bought and aged sort of kind of like the refectory um, locally. Like if you're thinking um, this was an institution in Buffalo, it had been there um, since the 40s, same spot, always there. And it was uh, it was known as sort of like the, the breeding ground for the next great chefs in Buffalo. So each chef that worked at Oliver's had subs and every single one, there wasn't a executive chef that worked at Oliver's that this didn't happen to, subsequently opened up their own restaurant that became a fine dining scene. So there was Hutch's and there was, there was Tabree and there was Mike A's and um, Ross Warhol is there uh, now who used to work uh, at El Bulli in Spain. So he um, came back, he's Buffalo born and bred, but used to, you know, stage and worked at El Bulli for a couple of years and then came back and he's running the program now and he's just going to open up his own restaurant um, this fall. So it's, it's just an institution. So I ran that program. Um, and their other, you know, I was beverage director for that company. So they have uh, three or four other places um, and did that for, you know, a couple of years. Um, and in that time, you know, we won Best Award of Excellence, got perfect scores on from the local news, got the AAA award, all, all of that. So we really sort of, um, Ross and I came in together and our goal was to elevate. You know, what, what at that point was, it was still a great restaurant, but it was showing its age. It hadn't seen, you know, new, new life in it in a while. And then Hyde Park reached out to me. The beverage director from Hyde Park left and they remembered me from the time I worked there five years ago and they were keeping up uh, and I kept in touch because I never burn bridges. You know, what's the point in that? And they reached out and wanted to know if I would be interested in in this, uh, what I do now, um, running the beverage program for, for a restaurant group. And I was like, yeah, sign me up. You know, at that point I was working six days a week, 10 to 12 to 14 hours a day. You know, I'd start my day at maybe one property doing a training. And then every night I was running the door and floor at Oliver's, doing tasting menu pairings, training the staff, um, all of that, and, you know, working 90 hours a week. Um, we just had our first kid at that point. It's like, you know, this, this isn't sustainable. So I jumped at the opportunity to be on the floor a little bit less and have a more it's not nine to five, it's more like seven to seven, but still um, a more traditional schedule, I suppose. So going back just a little bit, you mentioned serving competitions, which has never come up before on this podcast. So what all is a serving competition? Break that down for me. What does that entail? So I'm speaking directly to uh, like uh, like sales competitions at a restaurant. The one that I was speaking to uh I don't even know who put it on. I, I don't know. It's it's always typically a distributor or something and they have a new product or maybe not even a new product, but a product that they're focused on. You're you bring it in and you know, or maybe it's the store itself that's like, hey, the beverage director ordered too much OGA uh coat roti, right? We ordered two cases, I'm sitting on two cases. So the server who sells the most bottles or glasses of OGA coat roti in the next week 
I'll give a bottle of OGA co-road tea too. And, and, and that's what it was. So like a little bit of a incentive to kind of push some product. Not like um, different than like the sommelier competitions that I've also taken part of. That's just wacky stuff. And then, yeah, so you mentioned, you know, you're managing kind of the wine director and, and manager at the Melting Pot. And I think maybe before that or same time, kind of wine manager, I think at Just Vino. Like October 2010, I think you pass the Certified Specialists of Wine exam from the Society of Wine Educators. How did you wind up taking that exam? And specifically, like, that exam first, because most people, it doesn't seem like start with the Society of Wine Educators. They almost kind of wind up there. Like it's the third out of the three major kind of certification groups or companies, whatever you want to call them. So I was working at Just Vino at the time, um, a little wine bar in downtown Buffalo. Um, and the owners were two great people, but had no hospitality background. Um, but they were there every day, nice people, um, Ken and Jeff. And Ken, Super into wine, obviously. I mean, they're opening a wine bar, I would hope so. But no serving experience. So he was like, you know, I really want to get a certification, something like that, so I can do more. And I was like, you know, that sounds cool. Is there any that you know that, you know, that would work for like your schedule or whatever, just so we could study together? Um, and he picked the Society of Wine Educators, and I wasn't, you know, super... Um, super familiar with really anything at that point. I was still sort of nascent to, to the whole industry of the, the certification stuff. I was like, cool. So you just have to go sit down, take, take a test and that's it. Like they send you the book and everything's there. And all we do is have to like study this and we can, you know, we actually traveled to Cleveland, believe it or not, you know, to take it. And we took it at, at like a Fleming's here, I think. And he's like, yeah. So we studied for like four, six weeks, something like that. And we met um, every Monday night and then we, drove together and you know they they paid my way and I took that exam and then that's after I took that that's when I started like researching I guess more um the certification path but I didn't take that back up for I feel like it was a couple years time time's weird during COVID times but I feel like it was two or three years um before I like truly explored that with the Society of Wine Educators exam is that all a written exam the first kind of level with them or is it a combination of different things the first level, the certified specialist of wine. Because so there's two levels. There's the certified specialist of wine, and then there's the certified wine educator. And the certified specialist of wine is just a written exam. That's it. There's not a tasting portion. There's there's nothing. I think it's there was a hundred questions. Um, fill in the blank, multiple choice. I think you had to get a seventy percent to pass. If you got a seventy percent, you passed. And I think they even graded it right then and there. Like they just like had you wait for like an hour and. They graded it. It wasn't like a Scantron or any, I don't think it was a Scantron. It might've been, but yeah, it was, you got, you got your results right then. You know, they have the higher certification, you know, like the quarter, like, uh, you know, WSET does as well. You eventually join Hyde Park Restaurant Group for the first time uh, out in Buffalo, which it sounds like they're not really around the Buffalo area anymore. No. So that restaurant subsequently closed. Um, it closed... I don't know, 2014, 2015, something like that. We're primarily in the Midwest now. We're Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, um, and PA. And then we have a couple in Florida. With that location there, when you joined and it was open, how did you kind of wind up there? Did you just go and apply? Like, it seemed like, okay, this is an upper level steakhouse. They should have a pretty solid wine list, some buying power, obviously can make some money, you know, there too as well. Or did somebody kind of point you in their direction? Like, hey, you should go check this place out and go see if you want to work there. Or? I'd never dined there before. The only knowledge I had of it, it happened to be actually um, 
right across the street from the melting pot, which is where I work. So it, the, both of these were in in a, a high end like fashion mall sort of thing. So right across the street. So that was my only familiarity with it. And at that point, I was doing buying for the the wine bar as well, buying for just vino. So you know, I had a weekly budget and I was allowed to buy. So I was just trying to get because I was doing two jobs and grad school at that point, and it was just a lot. I saw Hyde Park and I was like, you know what? Um, I looked at the menu and I was like, that's expensive. That, you know, probably um, their managers might make a little bit more money. I mean, we were still too, my wife was in grad school too. And we were, you know, living paycheck to paycheck at that point. She she made a smarter decision and got her MBA um, than a master's in postmodern literature. But regardless, yeah. So then I just, I just stopped over there and applied and I was like, you know, Hey, here's, here's what I want to do. You know, um, really into wine, um, have this certification, um, you know, I, I manage and, you know, do all the back house stuff, you know, POS and all that stuff. But, um, and then, yeah, they were looking and brought me on board, which was, which was great. It was my first, you know, opportunity to run back then what, what I viewed as like a, a big wine program. You know, obviously it's, it had like maybe 150 bottles, which was big to me back then. It was it was a really big, high end wines. You know, like I remember like selling a bottle of Opus One for the first time. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe people pay like three hundred dollars. I think it's three hundred dollars back then, like three hundred dollars for you know a bottle of wine. That's insane. You know, just a year before, I was laying down you know a Chilean Chardonnay and a sweater in my closet. So yeah, so I, I just looked at that and it seemed like the right um, for for my very small, you know, experience. It seemed like the right move for, for what ultimately, you know, I, I had decided that I was going to have to do because, you know, if I was going to do this wine thing, I, I couldn't, I couldn't do it, you know, at a fondue restaurant. So I made that move and then we would see where that took me. So then like a year or so later, maybe it's like a year and a half, you wind up passing the certified sommelier exam from the quartermaster sommeliers. Why did you decide to take an exam with the court? instead of either doing the next level with the Society of Wine Educators or or what was the thought process there? Was it just the most famous and well-known of the three organizations? So that's why you went for it? Or I think I watched that movie. I think I watched some. I, I'm almost positive that that's what like brought that up. And 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 the place I was, I was working at Black and Blue at that time. So Hyde Park had closed and I went to another local steakhouse. Same idea though. And, and, you know, they offered to, to support it. They're like, hey, if you want to do this, you know, we'll we'll support you in that and, you know, give you time off and, you know, pay for it if you pass. And I was like, cool. Yeah, if that's what you want, I'll do that. At that point, you know, you have two exams under your belt. What were you kind of thinking at that point, your long-term kind of vision was for yourself, you know, doing more exams or, you know, I know eventually, you know, we're going to get there, but you do wind up doing more exams. But kind of what was your thought process at that time? Like, hey, well, I passed two different certifications because some people, they wind up doing, you know, the WSET because they want to get an education or something like that, or, or they do, you know, CMS because they saw it in some or it's, you know, popularized or whatever. I've never had a grand plan. I actually changed my undergraduate major five times and never knew what I wanted to do. I started with psychology and then went to pharmacy and then went to pre-med and pre-law and English and all over the place. I actually went to three different undergrad, I transferred to three different schools because, you know, if you change your major, you have to transfer. Um, that's how my 19-year-old brain works. So I've, I've never had a grand plan. I just like to learn. So at that point, it was like, okay, well, how can I learn at the same time that like I can, I guess, maybe add a credential. I, I don't really know, you know, why, what started that, that journey, um, you know, and with the certified, uh, with the court, 
um, too, I took it and like everybody told me, you know, not to, but I took it back when they let you take the intro. And then if you pass the intro, you could take the certified the next day. So I took both of those that same weekend. I sat for the intro and I, we didn't have any money at the time either. Um, so it was, it was held in, um, in Geneva, New York in the Finger Lakes from Buffalo. That's about a two and a half, three hour drive. And I drove in every morning, like it started at 8 a.m. And I drove, like got up at 4.30, drove there, drove back because I was like, I can't afford a hotel or anything to stay out here for the three days. So I did that every morning and I, you know, passed the intro and, you know, then sat for the certified. Probably the the only reason that like, I I guess I continued down the certification after the certified is, is um, I got what's called the Walter Klo Award, which is um, for the best score. On, in your certified class. I was lucky enough that in that class, uh, a master sommelier who lives in the Finger Lakes named Christopher Bates was there and he taught it. You know, when we were talking in the reception, he was like, hey man, um, if you want to keep going, and I think you should, um, reach out to me and, you know, I'll, I'll help you out. And like, my mind was blown because at that point, like master sommeliers were like, you know, rock stars. I had no idea who they were. You know, they were these mythical things. And like, here's one that's talking to me and like giving me his email address, like you know, crazy. Um, and then, you know, I, I did because I've, because I've never shied away from actually like reaching out to people. Like you say, you want to reach out? Like, okay, cool. Um, and I did, and we formed a little tasting group and then started doing that. And you know, that's what kept me going in it. I don't think, I think if I didn't have that, if I didn't have somebody like saying, hey, you can do this, or, you know, I think you should do this, probably wouldn't have, um, because it seemed like a natural stopping point, you know, that certified and, and truthfully, maybe in the background, but I don't know that any of the certifications have ever helped me. Maybe they helped me with confidence, I guess. I don't know, but help me get a job or keep a job, right? They've certainly helped me help build a knowledge, but you, I could build that knowledge other ways, right? The benefit is that, you know, there's some sort of like structure there and, and networking, but I don't think anybody's ever called me or, you know, said, hey, I want to work with you or, hey, we can import this with you or whatever because of, you know, my lapel pen. Um, I don't know. I could be wrong. I just, I just don't feel like it. I guess I've never done it for those reasons. I think if you're not doing those things for yourself, like for your your own edification, like your own growth, man, you know, that that night where you're staying up crushing flashcards or drawing maps or whatever the hell you, you do to study, it's, it's going to suck. I mean, it sucks already, but it's going to suck even more um, than if like you're doing it for yourself. Years ago, it was a differentiator, uh, maybe for people and, and jobs, or especially probably California and New York giant markets like that, where there's, you know, probably a lot of competition. A lot of people want to work at the same restaurant. Maybe that kind of would help separate you, but you know, in the Midwest, I think, and now with, you know, as you see all the staffing challenges restaurants have encountered over the past few months too, I just don't think that that's going to be a differentiator. Few and far between uh, restaurants are going to be in a spot where they have to choose between two people and uh, they're looking at certifications to make that decision. I think these days. You know, after you kind of take those exams, like you said, you wind up working at Oliver's, which is kind of like the spot in Buffalo, kind of the chef incubator almost where all these people go on. And it seems like every city kind of has at least one of those restaurants where it's they all five, six people kind of come out of that kitchen and wind up doing their own thing. And eventually you wind up joining Shoot Hospitality Group, taking over as their kind of beverage director. 
what restaurants were in their portfolio when you joined them? It's pronounced Shooty, Shooty Hospitality Group. Dave Shooty was the owner of, of Oliver's. So he, he purchased Oliver's about a year or two before um, he hired me. And then he also, we had a, um, like an upscale pub on Cold Creek View. Um, so I did the beverage program for that. Um, and we had a huge catering division. Um, we catered um, for um, Kleinahan's, which is uh, where the symphony plays. We catered for uh, um, the History Museum. So anybody who we were the exclusive caterers for any of those you know, high-end properties for weddings and um, charity events and anything like that. I did the beverage program for, for the catering division. And then we opened, we opened a steakhouse um, that closed, uh, well, I guess never reopened post-COVID, called Sear in downtown Buffalo. That was, um, you know, had some Buffalo Bills as partners and some Pagula Sports people, the owners of the Bills as partners, um, and um, opened up that restaurant. Molded or modeled, I guess, out of like a, like an RPM or STK sort of idea, like more modern, hip, um, big wine list, best of award-winning wine list, you know, Screaming Eagles and stuff like that on the wine list, Earth Growth, Bordeaux that sort of stuff. So we did that. And I did the buying and, and training um, for all of those restaurants, um, programming for all of those restaurants. And then still my, my day-to-day was working at Oliver's. Like, you know, no matter what I did during the day, come nighttime, you know, come service, I was on the floor at Oliver's still. So, you know, I was, I was running the beverage. That's why I was working 90 to 100 hours a week. I was running the beverage programs for all of those restaurants, doing all the buying, doing all the training. And then during the week, Tuesday through Thursday, we had tasting menu only. So I was doing all the tasting menu pairings and um, working the floor at Oliver's for that. And then weekends, you know, packed every Friday and Saturday. Um, so working the floor, working the door, uh, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies sort of thing. When you take over as a beverage director at an already existing restaurant, what is kind of the first thing that you're looking to change? Or do you have to kind of get a feeling of how open that establishment is to changing anything too as well? Like how does that dance go? So I've learned a lot about this uh, throughout my time because I've done this at probably six times now. And every time I, I make mistakes, that then I'm like, okay, next time I'm not going to do that. When I was younger, I'd just come and wreck the place. Like a Miley Cyrus on a wrecking ball, it'd just be done. Like I just, you know, this is what I want to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And that just doesn't work, doesn't. So what I do and what I did at Oliver's is I would, I would always identify my key people service staff, the bartenders, whoever that had been there a long time or that were passionate about wine, that knew the customers. You know, at Oliver's, they had a bartender. Uh, his name was Lou. He had been there 40 years. I kid you not, 40 years um, behind that bar. Great guy. Just retired, actually, I think two years ago. He was already retired. He was a teacher. He had retired from that, but just retired from, from Oliver's um, a couple years ago. Just did it because he loved it. He certainly didn't need the money. But I, I, I talked to those people and just talk. Like, um, it's not like, hey, let's sit down and have a formal meeting. Just talk, look at a P-mix too, see what's selling, see what's not. Um, and then also try to see where opportunities are. With Oliver's, when I walked in the door, their program was really big in classics, like a lot of Bordeaux, a lot of like Napa Cab, a lot of Burgundy, which is great, super. And that reflected the clientele that they had, that they currently had, older, wealthier clientele. But myself and and Ross, when the clientele that we were bringing in that knew us were younger, hipper sort of clientele. So at that point, we needed to change the wine list. So we started working with, you know, some, some, 
this was before natural wine was a thing, but some of those precursors to, to the natural wine movement, we got in some like ultramarine and, and cruise and back before got all of the big four uh, for Gamay and we got um, Solos and um, a bunch of like of the cool kid, like, um, oh, what was that called? In Pursuit of Balance. Pinots and Syrah back when that was a thing and Chardonnay um, and started working with that. And then the great thing about being, you know, on site or being, being there, that is my biggest challenge now is that every, every other day, every Saturday, often I would open up those bottles and talk to them about with the staff. We would, every Saturday, we would come in and we would come in an hour before well, an hour earlier than we did on weekdays. And we would sit at the bar and we would try one to two wines. And, you know, Dave, the owner was great. He never questioned, never asked, didn't care. Had full range to open really anything, you know, would open those and try them and talk about them and talk about how we would sell. And, you know, it was never like, do you like this? Because that's irrelevant, right? Because unless you're sitting at the table drinking it, it doesn't matter, right? I mean, it certainly helps to sell, I guess. But the, the question is always like, what guests would like this, right? How, how would we sell this? How would you recommend this? It's great, I guess, to make a wine list that, that you love. But if I made a wine list that of only things I love, I would, I would be fired at any of the places I've worked at because they wouldn't sell. Um, you can't have a wine list of all hand sell geeky shit. I mean, I guess you can if you're in like New York or Chicago, right? Maybe because there's enough people that would like that dig that, right? but certainly not Cleveland, Ohio, and Indianapolis, maybe more so in Indianapolis now, maybe, but certainly not where I've worked. Um, and that's really sort of colored how I walk in, how I, I focus on like what I change and if I change anything and I, I do it slower and I focus on training. I try to get people to buy in with me, talk about whatever I can talk about, try not to be pretentious at all. You know, whatever you want to talk about, if your favorite wine is, Kendall Jackson Chardonnay. Cool. Let's talk about it because you know what? They make a great Chardonnay and they make a great Chardonnay at like a million cases. You know how hard it is to make a consistent wine in a million cases that they're doing and pulling this fruit from everywhere? Do I drink it at home? No, not at all. Right? What is it good for what it is for like 12 bucks a bottle or whatever the hell you pay for it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that. And then maybe I can start talking to you about Premier Crucibly, which is like one of my, my loves love Chablis, you know, or maybe I can start talking to you back then about like, you know, Raj Parr's Chardonnay, like that sort of Sandy stuff. Maybe, I don't know, maybe not, you know, because at the end of the day, my, my biggest thing I'm tasked with that the owners of any that I've ever worked for, and they don't, it's not an explicit ask, but you know, it goes without saying, just make the restaurant money, right? I mean, like, honestly, I've never had an owner that said, you know, you sold, you sold 120 bottles of Camus this month and we made twelve thousand dollars on camus um that's good but i, I really don't like that i'd rather make six thousand dollars on you know heights no that's never been a conversation in any PL review it's, it's it hasn't um so that's where you pick your battles and you, you try to like you certainly try to have like cool interesting stuff you also have to realize it's not for everybody so you know build your list accordingly when you return to Hyde Park as their corporate beverage director left and you take over that slot, what is kind of the difference between a corporate beverage director and a beverage director aside from being overseeing, you know, multiple restaurants, multiple locations? 
Yeah, there's a big difference. And it was a huge learning curve. Um, my first year, 18 months were a challenge. So um, I think a beverage director at a location, right, at a single store, you're working with distributors, you're working with sales reps, you're tasting some wine, and you're building one list, right? You're not concerned um, really about availability because, you know, hey, if I run out of Ogier Coroti, I'll bring in Geigel Coroti or something like that, whatever, or I'll just 86 that product and I'll, I'll move on, right? I'll get something else because I, you know, see these guys every week and it's not a big deal. So first thing that I learned when, you know, when I took the corporate job is, is that it's, it's not really about working. You don't work with distributors so much anymore as so as you work with suppliers, so instead of working with, you know, like cutting edge, which I do work with cutting edge and they're great people and I work with their portfolio and I actually do talk to them. So this is a bad example, but let's still go with it. So instead of working with, you know, cutting edge, I'll work with like vineyard brands importer. So I'll work directly with the importer supplier of those wines and I'll say, okay, I would like to get, you know, I don't know if you guys have it available. I'd like to get a vertical pack of Bocastel shut and up to pop. And I'd like it in, I need it in Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, Florida, and PA. And then, you know, what pricing can you guys do it at? Um, and then they then work with the distributors and let them know that, hey, Hyde Park is going to program these wines. Brandon is going to program these wines. Um, and here's the pricing. So instead of just working, you know, one-on-one and buying, you know, a case of X, the deals become exponentially bigger everything is on a longer time frame. If I make a change to a wine list, if it's not a one-off change, right? If it's not like, you know, we're just bringing in a new Albarino for property X, because I guess once an Albarino, it's it's like a three-month lead time because it needs to get set up in every market and it needs to, we need to get training set up and all of that. So um, it's it's less being like, it's less being like the the all-star point guard of like a basketball team and more being like the GM that has to plan stuff out months, years in advance, right? There can be some disconnect because, you know, I'm rarely on the floor anymore. So stuff that I might have been able to sell, right? You have to think to yourself, okay, how could I train that? How could I get the people on the floor, get my beverage managers? Or 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 is the answer I can't, right? Like, you know, can, can I get somebody excited about like, Pinochetes or something like that. Can can I get people jacked about that? Probably not, because that's you know five or six steps removed from where I need to be. I've never, I guess, I've never, I've never realized the importance of training more than with this current job. You know, because where where before maybe my knowledge would carry me on the floor, I could always go over to a table or at least you know drive up the street to to see or whatever if they if we needed something that day i have restaurants in like sarasota florida hop on a plane and say i'm going to be there for joe smith who's coming in tonight it's different in more ways than it is the same so with dealing mostly with importers then instead of kind of the wine sales reps does it feel or does it seem like the days of a wine sales rep are maybe kind of numbered in the point where it sounds like almost most restaurants should kind of want to grow to the point where they have at least a couple locations and then maybe they can just deal with the importer directly. I'm, I'm sure there's some financial benefit to that, but also either they have the item that you want or they don't, where I think with a wine sales rep, it sometimes it can get into, yeah, we have that, but if you want that, you also have to take this other thing too. I, I would say that the distributors themselves are, are sort of 
raising the flag and, and showing us that they think the days of the sales rep are numbered, right? I mean, Southern has a new ordering system called Proof where you place your order online. You don't ever have to talk to a sales rep, right? Um, Breakthrough and RNDC, I think it's RNDC, have Pro-V, um, which actually just bought 750. So 750 is going to be Pro-V now. And you place your orders online and never have to talk to a sales rep. You know, the the little, the smaller distributors, though, there's going to always be a place for sales reps and for, you know, the, the, those feet on the ground, those people pulling bags, right? But your bigger guys, your Southerns, your breakthroughs, your, you know, if you're in New York, your, your empire, your um, Young's Market, that sort of stuff. I mean, I, I just, I can't foresee there being those entry-level sales jobs that much longer. They'll probably be fine wine specialists that'll have, you know, the high-end fine wine accounts and you'll see them Right. And they'll bring out, you know, the, I guess the esoteric for their portfolio lines that you won't have, you know, the, the entry level, you know, just learning about wine jobs that much longer that I, I can't envision. I mean, there, there's got to be bean counters that are, that are saying we can save this many millions of dollars by not having sales reps for Southern and, and, and breakthrough. And, you know, they're facing labor just like anybody else. Right. So. You know, that's just one less position they have to worry about trying to fill. With kind of like a sizable restaurant group like Hyde Park, you know, multiple states, multiple locations in each state. When you're looking to change something on the beverage menu, does it have to be something that can change for all those locations? Like there has to be enough supply to change it across the board? Or are you able to kind of do, well, we could change the menu here for the Ohio restaurants only, and we'll, we'll tinker with this and, and allocate it appropriately. Same with kind of Michigan. There's about like three different buckets that you got to look at it. Like for your your core, like buy the glass offerings, those are pretty consistent across every property because uh, to get the constant supply, you have to agree to and get the pricing right that you want. So then you can pass it on to your guests and you know not charge twenty five dollars for a glass and half a cab. You have to say, okay, well, we're, uh, we'll take 500 cases of that as a group annually. The only way to do that is to sell it at every property, right? So that doesn't mean that you you make a lesser list, but you potentially work with different people that can give you that support that you need. Where we do stuff locally, right, or store by store, is, is the bottle list is maybe 50% the same at properties, maybe. It might be less. That's really a store by store sort of idea. Um, thing clientele's very different at stores and especially across states. You know, in in, in Michigan, um, I, I sell a lot of high end Italian, Tuscany, and Piedmont are huge. Um, sell a lot of back vintage stuff there. Sell a lot of back vintage Bordeaux um, as well, second, third, and we have a great distributor that always has a back vintage uh, list of Bordeaux that I look at monthly and just you know pick what I want for those properties. Um, whereas, you know, here at like um, downtown Columbus, right, um, we're, we're selling really high-end Cabernet, right? Napa Cabernet, obviously, selling really high-end stuff. You know, like we just took our bond allocation and we sell out of bond every, every year before the next allocation comes out, right? At $1,000 a bottle, right? So I'm crazy. I, I wish I had that sort of money. I'd do something better with it, but I wish I, I, wish I had that where I could just drop the grant on a, on a bottle of wine. My wife, I would be divorced, but that would be fine. So yeah, so I mean, it's 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 that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there's there's certain lists where I might I might only have like a dozen French wines, and you know, 
do do I love that? Would I love that if I had to dine there? No, but am I the person dining there? Also, no. And then there's other properties where I have, you know, 35, 40. I have, you know, verticals of Bocastel going back to 95. I have Liwa and I have um, High End Burgundies and, and Premier Cruise and like I have Olga Refosh and all. And, and that's because those properties sell that, right? I mean, at the end of the day, one of the biggest differences between, you know, being a restaurant specific beverage director and being a corporate beverage director is I really have to look at like turn rate. Like, because I, I knew at, at, uh, at my individual restaurant, if I made a bad buying decision, you know, if I ordered a case of Agripar and like, you know, okay, fine. I'm still sitting on that after, after New Year's Eve. Well, I'll figure out how to use that. I'll do that. Right. I'll, I'll sell it. I'll make sure that I'm approaching every table with an anniversary or whatever, um, mentioning it and I'll go through that. I'll fix my mistake. Whereas here, it is much harder to fix my mistake. So if I buy, when I first arrived, I made a lot of mistakes the first year. I make mistakes every day, but I made a lot of mistakes the first year. Um, and I, I, I really, like, for some reason in my mind, I, I was bound to determine that we should have, like, we should have crew Beaujolais and we should have, like, two or three of them. And we should, like, as a steakhouse, be, like, pouring, like, crew Beaujolais, like, La Pierre. Like, why aren't we doing this? Um, I think some of those bottles are still at properties that I bought four years ago. And it's like, I mean, they're great, but I, you know, I had to come realize that like, okay, um, you know, that's maybe too far removed. And, you know, especially at a steakhouse where people are ordering, you know, if they order white, they're ordering big Chardonnays. If they are ordering, you know, red, it's cabs, right? I mean, like 75% of people, you know, nobody's walking in saying, you know what, I, I, I really want something really light to go with my bone-in ribeye. Um, but I wouldn't want California Pinot. I think I want Gamay. I, I can't imagine that's happened once in my restaurants. So, I mean, that's the biggest, everything is exponential. So mistakes get multiplied and, and, and wins get multiplied too, though. It's not all bad. Wins get multiplied. So if I make a really good buying decision, we worked with the guys um, from Maya Kemis, right? Um, the um, Value City guys who are local. We worked with them um, from Maya Camus and they offered us a vertical of Maya Camus going back to 98 at almost current pricing, right? So like, that was cool. That was great. And we sold through that and that was exciting. We got that for all properties. So, I mean, it's, it's not all, it's not all bad, but the things that you can do with one being at one restaurant, um, sometimes you have to play it a little safer with with a lot of units um, with big buying decisions you also though have cash flow to do other really cool things that you wouldn't elsewise be be able to do with a single owner looking at a daily pno so good and the bad march 2018 you wind up passing the advanced sommelier exam what was the most challenging part of that exam well so i, I took it three times um so i passed on my third time first time uh first day so it's it's broken up into three days. They've since changed it, right? But um, when I took it, um, it was three days and you took one part each day, right? So you took theory one day, which is a, the exam, the test itself, like a written exam. You took a service another day and then tasting another day. So six blinds, blind, three, three white, three red, 25 minutes. And that's done orally. And service is a service scenario where you take a couple tables, all of master sommeliers. Um, and I proceeded, I was so nervous. Oh my goodness. I, I had 
applied for the advance and that was back when normally you, you you had to take the course this was they still had the course and the exam broken up um, but normally they made you take the course and then the exam the next year i was one of two that they let me take the course and the exam the same year so i was like oh shit i don't know why that's going on somebody must have like chris christopher probably you know wrote me a great letter of recommendation or whatever so I sat for that and I, I, I did I did service. And um, at my table was um, Pascaline Le Petier, um, who was a master sommelier um, from Rouge Tomate. She since, has since rescinded her title um, with the, the whole the scandal and the sexual harassment stuff. Um, she's now um, with her scenes. Um, Brian McClintock of the Psalm movies and one other master sommelier. I can't, I can't remember who that was. And I proceeded to spill not one, not two, and I'm not making this up, three trays of champagne flutes, like was shaking so much I couldn't hold a tray, like shaking. And three times they knocked over on my tray, like because I was shaking so much. I spilled champagne all over Pascaline, um, all over her. Like, and we were the first service of the day. So hopefully she got to go change. And like, it, it got to the point where, where like when I would approach the table, they would like lean as far back as they could without like actually getting up because I mean, they, like I was going to spill some shit. That's what I was going to do. That's what I was there to wreck it. Like, I mean, I, there was no other way around it. And then like at the end of the service scenario, they were like asking me questions. I was like, oh, I don't even know. It, it just didn't matter. Like I knew that I had failed and that was the very like first of the three parts and you have to pass all three parts to pass. It's not like the master where you can carry a part. Like if you don't pass service, you fail. So, you know, I, uh, I called my wife and I was like, well, you know, I'm drinking in a crony. I'm like, I, I fucked this up. Like, this is done. Like, I don't even know why I'm here. And she's like, well, okay, well, take the next, you know, two things, you know, just do your best. And you, you know, you haven't passed, but at least you can learn, right. And you can take it again next year. Cause you can only take it once a year. Um, and so I, I sat for tasting. I thought I did pretty good on tasting. Sat for theory. Theory's always been my strongest. I crushed theory. I knew I did well on that. And so I sit down because they give you the results uh, then. But you don't wait. It's not like they email you or call you or whatever. They give you the results there. And so I sat down to get my results. And I wish I was making this up because I was so mad at the time, but I'm not at all. They said I passed service, but I failed tasting in theory and gave me like feedback on it. And I was like, I, I just, and I'm like, I'm, I'm not arguing because that would mean like, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just like, there's no way that's possible. Like, I, I mean, I'm sorry. I was in that room. Like I, I, I just, I, I don't know. So I left and I went to the bar and um, what did I have? I think I had a couple paper planes, like really, really fast, like chugged them. Like, like they were nothing. I called my wife and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. Like truly. You know, I thought I did well on tasting and in theory, but I failed. I thought I did ter actually I know I did terrible on service, but I passed. So um I I, I think I need to reevaluate what I'm doing because this was just doesn't make any sense. They gave me somebody else's results, come to find out. Uh so they stopped me. I I, I had passed what I thought I was gonna pass and failed service, and then I, I took it the next year and I just didn't put in the time and I, I, I didn't do well at all. Actually passed service, but didn't pass tasting or theory um, that year. And then the third time I, I went and I was just, you know, I was relaxed because I, I had passed all three parts, just not at the same time. And, you know, I, 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 I did a, I, I passed. I, I, uh, it was super exciting. It was in Portland, um, Portland, Oregon. 
you know, and but it was it was a lot of studying. I probably studied 20, 30 hours a week. I traveled to the Finger Lakes um, at least once a month, sometimes two times a month, you know, three hour drive tasting with the tasting group and Christopher Bates and other master sommeliers that, you know, he would have in, you know, just just a lot of time and a lot of work all at the same time that, you know, I'm actually in a new role, right? Trying to figure out how to become a, a corporate beverage director uh, and, you know, do this, this job that I've never done before. It was a lot, but it was, it was cool to pass. It certainly was cool. Did you ever sit for the master? Yeah, I sat once. How'd that go? So at that, when I sat, um, they had they had broken up theory and service and, and tasting. So you had to pass theory before you could go to service and taste it, right? So if you didn't pass theory, you could go on. I I it, so it's 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 a different. It's so different. Um, you know, they say that it's it's the, like the smallest leap from not I mean, nothing so small, right? But um, the biggest jump is from like certified to advanced. And then advanced to masters, like the knowledge is, is much smaller. But the theory exam with with masters is is all done orally. So you're sitting in in a room with two or three master sommeliers that's reading you every question. And I am from a one stoplight town in like south of Indianapolis. I I pronounce things in my head, and I've never heard them pronounced before. So like I had to ask for everything to be spelled. It's like uh, they would say something like, what is something? Like, uh, can you spell that word, please? Like every time. Um, I did okay. Uh, they said if my German knowledge was better, I would have passed. So I, I did fine. And then that was 2019, I think. And then I was scheduled to sit again in 2020. But then COVID happened and turned the world upside down. Do you think you'll sit for it again? I don't know. Um, I, I, am currently, I applied for the, uh, master wine program. So I'm currently waiting to hear back if I get into that. So that would be September. Um, if I don't, then yeah, probably I'll, I'll, I'll sit again because I, I don't want to, um, I wouldn't want to have to have to get a W set diploma because that, that's three years. Right. And I don't want to have to do that to get into the master wine program. So I'm looking to try to have a waiver because of the advanced, um, to see if they'll waive the, um, W set. So I have to wait and see on that. Um, if they don't, yeah, I probably will. And then you know, if I take it two more times and I, I don't pass theory, then you have to wait a year. And at that point, it'd probably um, be time to reevaluate whether you know I want to continue with that goal. Um, you know, because like I said before, I don't, I mean, the, the MS certainly does um, you know, open up doors. I'm, I'm certain about that. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, but I, I, I become a little disillusioned, not a little, a lot disillusioned uh, with all just all the issues and, um, that they've been having with like transparency and um, this, the harassment scandals and people were sending their, their, their pens and um, the cheating scandal where, you know, some friends of mine who, you know, passed got their pens taken away because one or two people in, in their, their uh, passing class cheated. So they took everybody's pen away. Like, geez, Louise, um, it seemed like there, it was like a series of follies there for a little bit. And I, you know, as much as I, I joked about it earlier, like I cannot, I know that mistakes happen, but how the fuck do you give somebody the wrong results when they've just spent like years of their life studying for this shit? Like, I get it. I get that mistakes happen. And I get that, you know, that this organization sort of blew up overnight. Right. So they went from being like small, insular sort of thing to like 
everybody and their brother being the premier organization in, in wine certification, right? And the the bureaucracy behind it, the structure behind it didn't grow as well, right? And that that's challenging. You know, like when I took when I took my master's and got my feedback, honest to God, the people who were in the room with me giving me the exam was not the same master someway who gave me the feedback. Like so they gave me hand like they gave me they read their notes and I think their notes and I'm I wish I was making this up because it's so absurd. Their notes were work on Germany. I really think that's it. I was trying to think if there was a second note. I and like I have just studied like 20, 30 hours a day, right? Or not a day, a week for this exam, flew to Dallas and like the middle of the summer in 110 degree heat, which Dallas, no offense to anybody from Dallas, but Dallas sucks. And like, it sucks even more in like 110 degree heat. Like I I would never want to go there, like, but I'm there. Like the feedback you give me after, like, and if you include like all the years that you've studied, like getting your intro and you're certified and you're advanced and all that, like the feedback I get is work on Germany. Like, no shit. I know that. Like, Tell, tell the Germans to make their words easier and I'll work on it. Like, I mean, I get it. But I, and I think, I think they're changing that. I think they're giving more written feedback and they're trying to become more transparent there. You know, they've never once told what wines you're tasting, right? At any of these, like the advance or whatever. It's just always like, even if you pass, it's just like a cloak and dagger sort of, uh, you know, you know, everybody's guessing. Uh, and I, I just, the older I get, the more I take issue with that. Uh, I, if I'm busting my ass or if people, you know, if my team is busting my ass or busting my ass, that'd be weird. Um, if, if, um, if they're busting their ass, I just, I sort of expect um, the feedback to be genuine and to be thorough. Like, I think that's the least one can ask. And that's why, you know, what, what precipitated my, my move and hopefully I get in. And if I don't, you know, like I said, I'll have to reevaluate um, to the master of wine. I talked to a, of masters of wine i talked to masters of the wines who are also master sommeliers and i'm like you know here's the issues i'm having um you know what do you think and like they're like yeah well you know everything's written feedback is like incredibly thorough but it's different um and it is in fact different i'll tell you that um there's a huge learning curve but um i'm working through that so yeah i mean i guess we'll see i don't know i hope i truly hope for everybody involved because i still have friends that you know sat for the ms this year and will sit next year and friends going for the advanced all this other stuff i'm still active in tasting groups where where i help you know help those people do those things i hope that the court works through these issues and comes out stronger on the other side because it can be a net positive and a really good thing for the industry and raising awareness and all of that but for for too long it's 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 really been chasm i mean and i realize i'm i'm a white male so i mean you know me saying this is sort of hypocritical but it's been like it's been a a white guy's club right where like um, you know me and my wife have talked about it like they don't they don't give you i don't know this to be true so take you know i don't know this to be true but since they don't give you written results and the exams aren't recorded like how do you know how do you know that like it's if, if if somebody's a point or two off that it's not like well we'd want to hang out with that guy but we wouldn't want to hang out with that guy you know I, and i i'm not saying that no but that integrity is that question because it's it's i don't think that but when there's the opportunity there i mean that that's challenging and to clarify the master of wine that's the same 
just basically a synonym for the WSET level four diploma? No. So it's above WSET level four. It's not the WSET. Um, it's actually not um, by the WSET people at all. Um, so it's by the Institute of Masters of Wine, which is a London-based organization. Um, so the WSET is a feeder into the Institute of Masters of Wine, a prerequisite for taking for setting for the MW program is either your WSET diploma or, um, and they're, they're, I think, intentionally vague about this, or a similarly high-level certification and or degree in wine. Um, so like a bachelor's in enology or, or viticulture or a master's in those or um, master sommelier certainly gets you into the program. Advanced is a gray area. So that's why I'm, I'm in that gray area spot. Um, but it's, uh, it's a three-year program, no service on it at all. So it's not a service-based program. Um, it's a writing heavy. It's almost, it's, it's, it's akin to like getting a PhD in wine. I mean, it culminates with writing um, a thesis on a topic if you're choosing it within the world of wine. Um, you know, there's a lot of tasting portions, but the, the tasting portion, everything is written. There's nothing that's oral. So the tasting portions are um, actually more extensive. They're like 12, you know, here's 12 whites. They all come, they're all made from the same variety. And then they'll ask you questions on, you know, um, and the questions could be like, you know, describe the winemaking techniques that make wine three and six different from one another. And so then you have to go into that. Um, and you try all levels of wine, whereas the, the court of master sommeliers, you're just trying classic examples. Like you're trying good wine, right? Whether you like it or not, it's good stuff, right? Like I don't like, I don't like Viognier, right? And I, I would burn all the vineyards of Condru to the ground. It's just, it's disgusting. Um, but you're trying great examples of that with the court of master sommeliers. Uh, master wines, you try grocery store wines at some point, right? Try, you try yellowtail, right? And you try hiding samples too. Um, but they, they really want you to understand what goes into winemaking at any point, right? And how to make a great wine or a good wine at any price point, right? In the vineyard and in whatever. And they, and they only focus on wine, right? No beer, no, no spirits, nothing like that. It's just wine. It's different and, and longer. I don't know if longer is the right word, but but more structured. There's 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 signposts along the way. So the first year you have to do this. The second year you have to do this. The third year you have to do this. Um, you know you have seminars and meetings every year, right? Where you have to you know fly to Napa and um, and have a five day seminar on whatever. Whereas um, the Cordis is is the study on your own program, sort of self directed. Uh, so it's it's different, but it's the same, I guess, the same level of prestige. The Master of Wine is, is recognized more internationally, whereas the Master of Wine is, is more, uh, I guess, North America, more recognized here. Did you ever participate in any wine competitions or anything when you were studying? Yeah, I did. What did I do? Um, I did one um, in New York. Um, it was the languedoc Roussillon. Uh, wine competition. I, I'm sure it was at a different name. Um, oh, two actually, because I did the Rune Art Challenge as well in Detroit. Um, yeah, so the Languedoc was an exam, and then if you, however, and it was all on Languedoc, uh, Languedoc Roussillon region, southern France region. Um, and you know, who the top five or ten people on that exam got flown to New York and got to sit for a blind tasting and then a service exercise and um i did not win that 
um, uh, see a aforementioned story about me spilling three trays of champagne on um, people. Um, not really um, so great at those things. Um, so yeah, so so I did that. Um, that was, I mean, it's fine. Um, and then I did the Rune Art Challenge, which is um, which is you, you take an online exam again, um, and then the top score getters of that exam um, get to go to they have you know, Detroit, Napa, San Francisco, Chicago, all this stuff, and you do a blind tasting there and a wine pairing exercise, and then you have a seminar with uh, the Rune Art um, Champagne, uh, the Chef de Cobbs, and then um, you know they they score it depending. And, um, you know, the, the winners get flown to champagne, um, for, uh, to hang out at Rune Art for a bit. I did not win that either. And then after that, I just, I stopped because it's, it's, I don't know, it's, um, all of these competitions are, 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 are going after such like, I guess, specialized like knowledge. They're typically about a region or something like that. And it's like, you have to know all the nuances and, and like just esoteric shit that just doesn't matter at all like even even if you worked in a like a michelin you know one star two star three star restaurant it really doesn't matter like it's it's minutia um you know and like i feel the same way about um built som has one like the i don't forget best som top som something like that um where you take this insanely hard like multiple choice exam where like part of it's like showing you a label and like with the producer removed, it's like, who makes this wine? But if you're not in New York and Chicago where you see like Medio Pepe, right? Maybe on the daily at like a Michelin starred restaurant, why the hell would you ever know that, right? Like, and, and what's the purpose of knowing that either? It's like, okay, so I can, it's, there's not, there's none. Um, bravo to the people who pass it and who do well and who win those things because you get money and stuff. So I get that. But if you look at, you know, whoever, who wins those things, although I think Gregory Stokes did top 10 one year um, in, in that competition um, because he's, he's fucking brilliant, smarter than me. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you look at it, they're always from New York or San Francisco or Chicago. I mean, almost like, like without, like I would put money on it every year that the top 10 almost consistently comes from those cities because there's just there's that sort of like sponge knowledge that you get from just being around that and having that availability consistently that you don't get um well in, in, in the midwest or flyover states or you have to work harder to get i guess i i don't want to say you can't get it but you have to work harder to get it do you think with the increased interest in wine due to the pandemic, increased, I guess you call it connectivity with social media and, and all this stuff, that more people will continue to kind of venture down the alternative, you know, wine career path, like you were kind of mentioning earlier, where it's hard to tell what benefits in some cases a certification would really have, where, you know, there's a lot of people that they did their certified and then they went off and opened their own you know, wine importer business or their own wine shop or something like that? Like, do you think that trend will kind of continue? Yes, I do. Um, and, and I think what, I think if you're looking silver linings, what the, the pandemic allowed people was to do was to reevaluate what they want, right? Reevaluate priorities, reevaluate you know, their lives. Um, and you know, it allowed people to, to say, you know, why am I working, you know, 80 hours a week at a job I don't really care for? 
you know, so I can buy, you know, something I don't really need, right? I'd rather work 25 hours walking dogs, right? Or whatever. Um, you know, so I've seen, I've seen a lot more of, of people that I'm connected with um, in the wine industry open up their own things, do their own things. I have a friend from Philly that she wrote a book about pairing wine with dogs, right? Called Pairing Paws. Like, and like she she did it during the pandemic. She was like, you know, I was out of work and I was like, I was looking at my dog. I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to do this. Um, and she did and she self-published it and it's on Amazon and people are buying it. Like, it's like, you know, it's cool. You know, I have friends that started, you know, consulting stuff. That seems to be the, the hot thing to do. People started podcasts, right? Um, you know, I was, I was incredibly fortunate and I, I don't, I don't mean that lightly. Um, I was never laid off, right? I was never like, I was still, I still, I worked through the whole pandemic and, um, you know, um, the company is great, super, like really great in that sense. Um, and, you know, so I even did some Instagram stuff for a while because I was bored, like I actually deleted my Instagram because like, this is, this is just, it's too much. And I just, it, it seemed very performative to me. Um, and like, I, I just, I just really found myself disliking it and focused a lot on it. I, and I think I had like 2000, 2,500 followers and I actually got paid to shill some shit on there or whatever. And I was like, it's like, I'm just done. I'm just going to delete it. I'm not going to deactivate it. Cause if I deactivate, um, you know, it'll come back eventually it'll come back. But if I delete it, then if I really want to be back on Instagram or whatever, I can set up a private one and I can have like eight followers and post stupid pictures of my kids and move on with my life and not like worry about any of this other stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it just, it, it, it gave everybody the chance to really think to themselves, what do you want to do? Um, and, you know, even at the same time, you know, everybody's at home, it gave people the ability to connect with other people virtually. Right. And so you saw what your friends were doing in San Francisco or Cali or whatever. Right. And, you know, I know that I talked personally, you know, to somebody from San Francisco that started a private wine tasting business and was doing events. I was like, how, how do you do this? How did this work for you? That's pretty cool. Um, you know, I talked to a, a, a wine writer um, based in Arizona, you know, I was like, that's awesome. How did you start like doing that? Um, people had time, so they were uh, more than generous with it um, and helping anyone out, which was great. But yeah, I think, I think the, I think the classic sort of, even if you look at like the, the, you know, high end, like pinnacle restaurants, like, you know, your 11 Madison parks and stuff like that. Those, those beverage directors and sommeliers are leaving to do their own like little, you know, Dustin Wilson left and owns a wine shop, like a little burp wine shop, right? They're leaving to do not necessarily less exciting, but smaller things, right? And I think the big, the big thing that, that we as, as a hospitality community started to realize is that time is of value too, right? Time is a finite resource and, you know, working 12, 14, 16 hours a day is it's fucking crazy. Like, I'm sorry. Like, that's crazy. Um, don't do it. And if you're listening to this, don't do it. It's not worth it. Um, you know, because, um, and maybe having kids made me realize this too, but like, that's like, time is, is the one thing that like, you can't really get back. So, I mean, do what you got to do, but um, 
don't know that any job is worth working 14 hours a day. When you look at kind of the next generation of sommeliers, since you're still going through some of the the final exam processes, I guess, what do you see? Is it more diverse? Are there more women now than kind of when you first started or does it seem about the same? So um, I'm not, I'm not the best at, to, to ask that because um, in, in, in my core tasting group, it's always been um, two women and two men always since we, we started like going through like advanced together. Right. It's, that's, that's what it's been. Um, you know, so if I, if I look at like maybe the broader, the broader community, um, yeah, it's, it's diversifying a little bit, but what, what, what I would say is that it's not diversifying or at least I don't see it. Um, in, in the sense of like certification level sort of stuff, maybe at the certified level of the court, but I don't, I don't see it um, at the upper there, there, there is more, more women. Yes. But like, if I walk into a room of, um, you know, the people taking the master sommelier, it's probably still 80, 20, maybe 70, 30, something like that. Um, so it still doesn't reflect the, the wider society. Um, but what I'm seeing with the, the, you know, the 20 somethings and, um, you know, is they're doing cool stuff with, 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 wine and beverage in general right that like people just wouldn't think about before right like i love seeing these canned cocktails pop up everywhere right canned wines and seeing that and seeing you know um you know people making those and promoting those and i love um ramona just so good um you know so i i really like to see i mean that's exciting right the people who are making um it accessible and like um, you know, doing, doing the wine writing, but, but, you know, cause, cause for, for the longest time, journalism in general, right. But wine art writing specifically was, was always about like, was about facts. Right. And I'm not saying that, that it's not currently, but it was about like, what's the region like, They'll talk about the soil, maybe talk about the vintage, talk about how Billy Bob has his farm dog that runs through the vines and, you know, they named wine x after rexy but whatever um and now what i'm seeing that like truly excites me is this from like you know websites such as punch and and you know even on 750 daily you see these these things is is people talking about their experience in conjunction with whatever else we're talking about you know i read um an amazing article um from uh rachel del uh, del rocco um about her experience in, in hospitality and alcoholism, right? This is shit that we, we just wouldn't talk about five, 10 years ago, right? I mean, like huge issue in the industry. I mean, like huge. I mean, I started, started drinking when I was like 17 in the industry. It was just like, whatever, that's here, right? Um, you know, so like, you know, M Miguel de Leon talking about, you know, um, representation, um and, and how that affects i mean like we're we're exploring these i don't want to say they're not taboo but these these topics that before you know it was it was um you know let's talk about the wine how it tastes and let's not really you know think about any of these bigger picture items that that have to come in everything was disconnected everything was siloed right but that's even even like jobs right well you know, when you hit that door, your life outside doesn't matter. You know, you put on a smile and you serve Karen over there that wants, 
you know, uh, an eggless omelet, right? Um, but that's just not how, how anything works. It's not how people work. That's not how the world works. And people are addressing that, which is great. And it's it's seeing it's seeing these wine shops that that pop up that you know are focused on you know BIPOC producers or focused on um, you know education in the sense of you know how to you know tastings or what whatever. It's it's really cool. It's really nice. It's really cool to see. Um, and it's it's incredible to see the people who are helping out other people. You know, I have reached out when I whenever I reach out um, to anyone. Because I, like I said, I, I've never had an issue just reaching out um, to ask, like, "Hey, hey, yo, you're doing some really cool stuff. I like what you're doing. Um, I'm really, I mean, like, awesome. Um, you know, it, I would it, maybe I want to do something similar like that here. Maybe whatever. Um, you know, everybody is the beautiful thing about this in- industry is everybody is more than willing to give you their time to help you out." I, I've, I've never once had anybody say no, right? It's, it's really weird. Um, that's great. I mean, that's, that's probably what keeps me here, right? Is, 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 is what, um, just the people, it's great people in this industry. What wine region or wine style do you find yourself gravitating towards the most? You know, I, I find that every sommelier, anybody who got really into wine, they all have a specific area, a specific region that's like, that's my first love. You know, that's what really got me into to wine. What's yours? I love, I love Barolo. I love, I love Mascarello Monprovato Barolo, but I'll take, drink any Barolo. Um, if it's good, I just, I just, I just, uh, yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's ethereal, you know, dried fruits and, and, and just like, like red fruits and, tar and cool stuff and then like you look at it and you're like oh cool this is gonna be light whatever um and then you you drink it and the tannins rip your face off and you're like oh cool that's uh that's totally different it's like pinot noir meets like you know cabernet um you know it's i, I just dig it and i dig that you know it i dig that nebbiolo really doesn't grow super anywhere but piedmont right i mean like um, I mean, Barbersville in Virginia makes makes a good one that I like, but not not again not at the the heights of Barolo and um, you know there's there's a couple producers in California that are making decent ones, but like it is uh, so site specific. Um, you know, it's cool. I I really like it. Um, my my wallet doesn't like it so much, but 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 I do. Is there a wine region that you're kind of most excited to focus on? One that's, you know, either on the come up or one that you just haven't explored that much so far in your career that you're interested in kind of taking a look at and and diving deep into? Yeah, I want people to drink more Finger Lakes wines from New York. I mean, I I just, it's not that I haven't explored them, but I I think that um, they are, I think they're Riesling specifically are world-class and I would, I would argue um Don Blue in the face that Herman J. Weimer's Magdalena Vineyard Riesling is the best Riesling in the country, right? Like I put it up against anything, it's the best Riesling in the country. And you know, if you were blinding it, it would it would beat some Germans. It would it, it's it's amazing. Um and I think what those people are doing out in the Finger Lakes and people like, you know, like Christopher Bates with Element Winery and Colloquial, like um uh, like the Red Newt, um, Red Newt Cellars and, and, and Kelby and Oscar at, at Herman J. Wimmer, Oscar and Fred and 
um, you know, the smaller properties uh, to what they're doing is, is, you know, they're, they're making world-class wines uh, from a wine region that, you know, still is heavily um, based on wine tourism, right? And that's a challenge. That's a huge challenge, um, you know, outside of, you know, some, some restaurants in New York, um, you know, and, and maybe, maybe West coast and stuff like that. It's, it's a challenge. And, and I would, I would argue that, that most, most people, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to point to it on a map and, and aren't really super familiar with it. Um, but seeing the growth, we were in Buffalo for 10 years. So seeing the growth after the past 15 years of the Finger Lakes from when we started going there till now, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's great. Some of the, the best sparkling in the country too. Um, from the Finger Lakes, like um, Herman J. Weimer, they they made they made um, a sparkling wine. Um, they made it for the Nomad Group, a Brut Zero, Brut Natur, sparkling wine, zero dosage. I mean, I think you can buy it at their tasting room now. That was probably the best domestic sparkling I've ever had, and just so good. So yeah, I mean, drink more, drink more Riesling, I guess, from the Finger Lakes. Um, you know. I, I hope people drink more Finger Lakes recently. Are you able to enjoy a dinner out whenever you and your wife are able to to go out, or do you compulsively check the wine list as soon as you sit down to see what they have? So, um, and it's uh, I can't tell you the last time that we went out for dinner, me and my wife, just us. We have two kids. We have a, a five year old and a seven year old. Um, so, like, just and, and we're we're transplants, so we don't have family here. Um, so we we go out for lunches um but like at, at lunch i don't order I actually I, I don't order wine out i don't i just um i'm always disappointed um and it's not right or wrong but i'm just always just not super excited by by whatever i get um when we travel we'll order a lot of wine um but yeah the the restaurant choice is dictated at that point by what's on the wine list so i'll be looking online and i'll be you know, checking it out and I'll know what I want to order before we even walk in that door. Um, cause otherwise my wife would kill me cause I'd look at the list for 15, 20 minutes and you know, she'd be like, okay, just make a choice already. I don't care. You're in Cleveland, right? I'm on the, um, the East side of Cleveland in Beachwood, Ohio. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've spent time in Buffalo, Cleveland, Indianapolis, kind of these Midwest cities. So, you know, with your time in each one of those, how is kind of the restaurant industry change what do you think in those scenarios or in kind of the midwest still needs to change so i mean in the past decade or so what what i've noticed um and what's the a great change in in the restaurants and and the, the beverage scene um in general is that it's a focus on on local right and the ability to get local right so um you know with the rise of small farmers and the rise of um I mean, the small farmers were always there, but they didn't necessarily have that that method of getting their product out to people. Um, and that's changed. Same thing with the small producers, same thing with the small distributors. So you're able, even in a small market, you're able to open up a very specific, um, you know, type of restaurant and have people go to it. I mean, Buffalo, we were, I was actually just in Buffalo yesterday. Um, and the, the see some friends and you know the 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 proliferation of little farm to table like really cool talented chefs and food and um 
beverage programs is, is incredible, but be, before you weren't, you weren't able to get some of the stuff that they're getting now, right? Um, you know, because it was flyover country, right? If it wasn't New York, maybe you stopped in Chicago, um, and then you would go out to, to San Francisco, right? And that was it. That's, 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 that's what was going on. Um, but now, you know, you're able to get food, produce, the, the beverage, right, that you, you just couldn't get before. And it just, and it opens up doors. And then what, what, that, what that does is it brings back homegrown talent. Right, so you 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 don't have to be in New York or Chicago or San Francisco to make really cool stuff and do cool things. Like you know, seeing seeing the talent that has come back to each of those regions, and you know, has won James Beard awards, has won all that sort of stuff. Um, it's great because you know everybody deserves good food, good beverage, good wine. What's uh, next for you professionally, aside from, you know, waiting to find out if you're going to sit for the, the master or go to the, the Masters of Wine program? But other than that, anything on the horizon for you professionally or down the road, you know, opening your own wine shop one day, anything like that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, my wife and I have always talked about opening um, opening our own like little wine bar, but that, that might be a more retirement-based thing, right? Um, I I am still having a great time and learning a lot um, running this beverage program for this company, right? I learned, like I said, I'm making mistakes every single day. Just try not to make the same ones twice. Um, and, you know, my my ultimate goal would would to be you know be more education and training focused than than beyond on the the buying and you know so i mean the the stuff that i really enjoy is is that education and training and and that sort of aspect of it you know no one i think i was telling i was telling um some of the servers the other day um because i was at a, at a property rolling out a new beverage program a new cocktail program um so, you know, it's crazy how much I learned about Excel, like in this job, like, why do I know so much about Excel? Like, that's never like why, like, it's insane. Like, I don't want to do that. Um, you know, so if I was able to, to deal less with, with P&Ls and profit and loss statements and cost of goods and out of stock items and that sort of stuff and focus more on just like evangelizing for stuff I love or teaching people about you know, wine in general or beverage in general, it'd be pretty cool. Um, I'd like that. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Sebastian LaRocca, who is going to be opening up a restaurant fire here in Columbus uh, in the new Hilton Hotel. He leaves behind a question, why wine? Why'd you get into wine? Yeah. So, well, so, so why originally did I get into wine is because I wanted to be able to pay my bills and make more money and sell more stuff. Right. So I, I looked at the, the servers who made the most money at the restaurant I was at, and um, they were the ones who knew the most about wine. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll do that. Um, why I'm, I'm still in it because it's, you know, it, 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 it's a lot like um, literature to me. Right. I mean, it's super subjective. You know, you have people who like any, anything under the sun um, and, it changes all the time. There's new faces and new new winemakers and new authors. There's, you know, it's it's not an objective thing, right? And it, it changes with time too. Um, you know, I mean, you can never learn it all, right? Which is you know, it's fun, and you know, they they pay me to do it, which you know is cool too. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? 
if you could go back to your younger self and or you know um, mentor younger people in the profession now what is the one thing that you you wish that someone had told you right that someone had had really communicated to you about what you do so this next question comes from one of our listeners which of the three wine certification organizations so wset a CMS or a Society of Wine Educators would be the best for an aspiring SOM to get started with? Well, I mean, if, if, if you plan on working in restaurants, right? So it depends on how they're using that term sommelier, if, if they think that it's a restaurant-focused term. The only one that, that deals with service in any capacity is the quartermaster sommeliers, right? So um, so if, if it's on-premise focus, if it's restaurant focus, I mean, the quartermaster sommeliers, and still even with the black eyes, that they've taken, they're still the most widely recognized. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a longer process, but that that's the one without a doubt that, you know, I would start with. It's the one that most people I mentor are going for. So this next set of questions, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far when you look back on it? Uh, Jeffrey Fignar. Um, he was the one who originally got me into wine when I was a 21-year-old server at the Melting Pot. He was the beverage manager. And I, I didn't realize that, like, at the at the time, um, you know, how much he was doing. But he let me sit in on any tastings I wanted to come to, listen to my really stupid opinions at the time or uneducated opinions at the time, um, and just subtly, right, would would guide me in the direction of, of, of what um, – you know, more knowledge, which was great. And I think without him, I probably am not in wine, period. Um, and then uh, Christopher Bates um, from the Finger Lakes, um, for sure. Um, less so on, on my professional career, I, I guess, um, more so on my professional growth, which I think probably goes hand in hand. Um, you know, he was the one who told me to, you know, keep going. He's... Um, you know, introduced me to so many amazing people um, that I stay in contact with to this day. Um, you know, we still, the other day we were, I reached out about, um, someone was I asking, oh, slushy machines, because I wanted to do like a frozen drink on like a patio. I was like, I'm pretty sure that you've, you looked into slushy machines. I, like, yeah, to, to like an advanced someone, a master someone, you're talking about slushy machines, but yeah, that, that was what it was. And we like, we had a phone call, like a 15 minute phone call about slushy machines and the benefits and down downsides to each one, which is like, just funny, I guess. I really want a slushy machine. Um, but that sort of uh, having that resources helped me quite a bit um, and, and really pushed me to realize uh, probably the opportunities that are there that otherwise never seen what is your desert island wine um if i don't have to pay for it um i would like some uh really really old um 70 76 like bartolo mascarello um barolo although if i'm on a desert island i probably want some like bubbles because that's red wine and that's gonna not be super fun so restaurant you recommend that isn't your own so something that's outside of the hyde park restaurant group what's a place in cleveland that you'd recommend uh in cleveland i really um i, I end up going quite a bit 
to flour this little Italian place for lunch. Great wood, uh, wood fired pizzas, homemade pasta, um, great bolognese, um, you know, locally owned. It's like, I really, really dig it. Um, really quite good. Um, and, and just simple. It's, it's how I like to eat. It's not, there's nothing you know, necessarily fancy about it, but it's just everything they do, they do well. Um, just, you know, the older I get, the, the more I look for bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurants. Is there any place that you haven't been able to travel to yet that you still want to visit? And then any restaurant that you haven't dined at that you still want to get to one day? Yeah, I, I, um, I really want to go to South Africa. Like that's my number one. I really, I think they're the most exciting wine country in the world right now. I think just what they're doing is just crazy. You know, old vine shinnins and, and the brandies and, um, and the Syrahs and the, just i mean they're just it's crazy what what they're doing uh, you know the all heights and uh up the world down there it's really really pretty cool um so i'd love to go there um hang out there for a bit plus it's beautiful um uh restaurants um that uh I, i'd love to dine at um if i could go back in time i'd love to dine at 11 madison park before it was vegan um you know that's that's one that um i regret um missing um and i i really i really love everything um the alinea group does i i i, I haven't I, you know anything that they open i would love to dine there again like i love i just dined at um roost um a bit ago and just um you know so good um yeah but i, I would love to dine at 11 madison park before uh before it changed oh and 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 and, and um yeah yeah that's it the craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working I had to throw out Santa Claus one Christmas Eve. It was at Oliver's. We were, it was a restaurant where we were open Christmas Eve and we were, um, you know, been open that way forever. And a guy dressed in a full Santa Claus suit, like head to toe, beard, hat, everything, jingle bells, um, walked in and, you know, sat at the bar and we're like, whatever, you know, it's colorful people in Buffalo, you know, have a drink. Um, well, it turned out he was inebriated prior and he started walking around uh, the restaurant, full restaurant. We were always packed Christmas Eve. I'm um, asking kids to sit on his lap, um, like in an inappropriate way. Well, I don't know how that wouldn't be inappropriate, but it was inappropriate. Um, and, uh, and we had to throw out drunk Santa Claus, like in the middle of like at 7.30 on like a dinner shift on Christmas Eve, like me and Lou, the 72-year-old bartender, um, you know, had to escort him out and tell him that you know he couldn't ask you know the children what they wanted for christmas like he needed to go and as he was leaving it's like you're gonna throw out santa claus you're gonna throw out santa claus on christmas eve so yeah that that was probably the craziest thing ever. food or drink guilty pleasure is there anything you know candy fast food anything like that that you know is you know unhealthy and bad for you but uh, you just can't help it um i love shake shack like, I mean, I don't know that, I mean, that's bad for you, but it's, it's really quite good. Um, I love Shake Shack. Yeah. Really just that. I mean, like I, I eat fast food way too much though, like just in general. Wine recommendations. So we got this in the four categories all by price point here. So a wine recommendation for $20 and under a bottle, $50 and under a hundred dollars and under, and then over a hundred, no limit. You know, under twenty bucks. I mean, I would do, I would do Weimer, like Herman J. Weimer's Dry Riesling from the Finger Lakes, like fifteen bucks, and like it is, like, like 
drinking electricity. It's like just so focused and linear and sharp and and it's great every vintage. I'm yeah, under 20, 20 to 50. Well, just zero to 50. So, I mean, if you want to choose another under 20 or whatever, fine, but just has to be under 50. Choose um, Pasco Pizarro, um Etna Rosso. I'm super excited about Etna Rosso's, really dig them. They're made from um, uh, a grape, Norello Mascalese, which is uh, it's kind of like if you if you went in between like a Pinot Noir and a Barolo, right? So they have tannins, um, not quite as much as, as, as Barolo, but they have that sort of like floral and perfumed quality and red fruited quality of like uh, a good Pinot Noir um, grown on the, um, on Mount Etna um, in Sicily. So like, you know, if depending on when you go, you can actually like watch lava sort of flow through the vineyards. Uh, it's really cool. Um, and they're really good. And you know, that wine would probably cost you like 30 bucks. So zero to a hundred is the next category. I really like for like everyday drinking. It's not every day. Anything under hundred bucks is every day. Um, but I like Masolino Barolo quite a bit. Just their Saralonga Dalba um, Barolo. Um, you know, I used to be able to get it like really all the time. And then uh, I think Wine Spectator put it like number five wine of the year, which is like always the bane of everybody's existence. So now um, retail shops are. are buying it up so it's quite it's a little harder to get um but it's it's a great barolo to be able to drink um younger right you don't have to wait you know three four five years you can drink it right away it's really quite good anything over 100 no limit the one time that i was lucky enough to have it it really it really blew me away i i I couldn't even tell you the price point on it now but ultramarine um the sparkling wine out of uh out of california um had huge press and like a really wine geeky following but he was trying to like make a champagne style wine but with uh california ripe fruit and like tiny minuscule production i was the first vintage at oliver's i was able to get like two bottles um and it it was it was just different it's different than any sparkling wine I've ever had a chance to have. It reminded me, not in flavor profile of like like Solos, but in like difference and like and like aliveness, if that's a word, right? And like sort of like unlike anything I tasted. It was it was really cool. Back then, it was like I don't know. Back then, we put it on the list for maybe like two hundred bucks. So that means that it probably cost like cost just like seventy five or. Or, or 90 whatever um i couldn't tell you what it is now i i have not actively seen a bottle of ultramarine years um but if i could try that wine again that would be great I'd love it having just got back on instagram recently or, or taking a break is there a favorite instagram account that you follow or followed um i, I mean i like shitty wine memes a lot i mean yeah that's probably my favorite um subculture song i like too which is funny um yeah, I mean, those are it. I mean, they make me laugh constantly um, and they don't take themselves too seriously. Um, yeah, I mean, they're not. Yeah, that's it. I don't follow a lot. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. Uh, if you were, is there a moment, episode, scene, something uh, about him that kind of stands out to you? 
that you always remember? Or if you weren't, was there another kind of TV culinary personality that you were always a big fan of and kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? So there's not, there's not um, a scene because I never watched, I never watched um, that, that show, but I read, I read the book, right? Kitchen Confidential. And the, the thing about, about Anthony Bourdain that, that sticks with me is how he, I guess, pulled the veil back about like what happens in, in high level kitchens, right? And in, in restaurants, like made it, made it okay to to talk about that stuff just like today you know we were we were talking about like how now it's okay to talk about like how you interact like as a person with with um with the wine or with the with the region or with the, the restaurant or whatever how mental health has become um you know okay to talk about in, in response you know before that like no one even talked about that aspect of the business and like you know he wrote a book about it and did it um you know you could there's like a clear before and after um you know i think i think a lot of uh, a lot of people um you know really owe a debt to to that book for changing um how we how we talk about hospitality where can people find you social media website plug everything nowhere <laughs> uh, my instagram is private uh, i have a website um but it's it's really i mean i guess i guess you can look at it's sommierford.com but it's um it's only for don't go there looking for anything exciting it's for me to practice writing for the mw so i write some articles that are are truly meant to like never be read by anybody but i don't care if people can go there and do it um they're they're for me to get back in the habit of of writing because the MW program is so heavily writing intensive. So, um, you know, just get, get reps in for that, but, but it's there. This is awesome. Obviously, you know, wish you the best of luck on if you wind up doing the master again, or if you wind up going into the masters of wine program and getting admitted there uh, and following through with whatever you choose there. It's always fun to talk to People in the wine industry, different experiences and everything. It's funny you mentioned Chris Bates a couple of times and he actually was on this podcast and his episode uh, comes out this week, uh, this Thursday. So that'll be, that'll be coming out and everybody kind of in the area seems kind of connected. Uh, you know, Chris Dillman was connected with him and Chris and Greg were connected and then everybody's kind of connected and, and that's always kind of cool to see how everything like spiders out and then where everybody kind of winds up and how everybody comes together for whatever events and, and then they go all, everybody goes back to like their, their separate kind of places in Cleveland or New York or Cincinnati or whatever, but still kind of all in the same, same area too as well. So, but yeah, if you ever, you know, need anything from us, feel free to reach out. We try and support everybody as much as we can. So, but otherwise, you know, it was awesome chatting with you and stay in touch and, and definitely uh good luck with everything. And, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll be chatting uh, down the road too as well. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. A big thanks again to Brandon for reaching out and coming on the podcast and taking some time out of one of his mornings to chat about his career and how he got into wine, where he's wound up, future endeavors kind of within the wine world. So again, you can follow him on Instagram at 216SOM. Also at Hyde Park Prime Steakhouse is the restaurant account essentially on Instagram. Follow us there too as well at Spoon Mob. Make sure to check out the website, spoonmob.com. Make sure to subscribe, follow the podcast on whatever player that you use. That will help us out tremendously. You know, next time you pop into a place that uh, we've had a person on from here on the podcast, make sure to just 
drop a line, drop a quick thing with them. Hey, you know, heard you guys on the Spoon Mob podcast and love what you do. That helps tremendously in, in spreading the word and validating people who take some time to come out on the podcast that people have heard it, people appreciate it, and uh, people want to support them too as well. So we try and reshare everybody's new updates and everything through Instagram as much as we can and and try and support by, you know, visiting ourselves too, at least kind of once a year. It's a little bit harder for the people that come on the podcast that are from out of state, but that's kind of always our goal to support everybody that uh, is supporting us. So appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here a while, thank you uh, for your continued listening and continued support uh, of the podcast. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week.